You are listening to the Krika Lecture Series podcast, produced by the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This and other Krika podcasts are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more information about Krika's lecture series and public events, visit our website at krika.wisc.edu. Today, I think our speaker is familiar to uh, everyone in the room, but maybe for the benefit of our future podcast listeners, um, I'll just mention uh, briefly that Ted Gerber is the Conway Baskin Professor in the Department of Sociology. He is a past director of Krika and currently the faculty director of the Wisconsin Russia Project. Um, Ted's research examines social inequality, economic change, migration, family processes, housing, public opinion in uh, contemporary Russia, Ukraine, Kyrgyzstan, Georgia, and other countries of the former Soviet Union. And um, I'm sure you all know uh, Ted's record in research, teaching, and public service. Um, He's the author or co-author on over 50 articles on these topics, uh, eight book chapters, etc., etc. Go to his website to learn more. Um, So we're really happy to have the opportunity to learn about um, Ted's uh, recent project on uh, Kyrgyzstani labor. Great, thanks. Thanks, and, and, and thank you very much for all coming out today on the, this end of the semester, uh, early winter post-Thanksgiving uh, lecture. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to have you, and it's a pleasure to, to be able to talk some about uh, some of the research I've done in Kyrgyzstan, which um, uh, I'll be doing today. And so, I, um, so I'm going to be reporting on uh, some research, uh, some data I collected um, in in Kyrgyzstan in uh, 2017, and in prior years, some, some qualitative data as well. Um, and so the data are not exactly new, but I'm still uh, I'm sort of, sort of uh, reached a, st- uh, a period of respite in analyzing these data, and uh, as I'll explain more. And a lot has happened since 2017, of course, but um, uh, my title, uh, I added this recolonization uh, title, and that's be deliberately a little bit provocative to kind of hint at, and that's a sort of subtle reference to this uh, 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 the calls we're hearing a lot to decolonize Russian studies, decolonize Eurasian studies. So I'll say a little bit more about what I mean. Uh, but the 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 bulk of the talk is going to focus on Kyrgyzstan labor migrant experiences in Russia, and I'm going to advance this notion of geopolitical remittances based on the data. But it's going to be pretty low-key, not, not high-tech, very descriptive. So uh, if you're expecting causal identification, you're going to be disappointed. Uh, but maybe we'll get to that in the next phase in the research. So um, first, by way of background, uh, I want to just sort of call attention to, to, to situate the study in the context of uh, three you know, broader concerns. So first of all, the Eurasian migration system is one of the world's most important and largest migration systems. It does not get its due attention, in my opinion, from migration scholars who are not regional specialists but are interested in migration as such. Uh, Most of it uh, in the recent uh, decade or so consists of labor migration, or not, I shouldn't say recent, but until uh, the war consisted of labor migration to Europe, uh, primarily from other uh, former Soviet republics, 
and it really took off in, in numerically in the late uh, or mid uh, late late 2000s, late aughts, so to speak. Um, it has many important repercussions. It's been studied from economic, demographic, socio-political, cultural, and legal aspects. Um, I so I want to argue that we should also understand Eurasian migration and specifically labor migration to Russia uh, from a geopolitical perspective, and that's part of what I'm going to try to do with this project, and we've been trying to do. Um, second of all, of course, uh, so, so there, there is some work on labor migration to Russia, uh, particularly from Central Asia, but also from other <coughs> countries as well. Um, and, but that work sort of came to a halt in, uh, in 2020 as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. And of course, um, in recent years, not only did, so, so COVID-19 had a major effect on Russia um, it's uh, effect, it, it, including economic effects, so also including you know, attempts to secure and shut down the border. And so it, caught, it threw a whole wrench in this uh, labor migration, and we're only now uh, beginning to understand that impact. Um, but of course, since other things have happened even since winter of 2020, such as political crises in Central Asia, um, including uh, regime change in Kyrgyzstan itself, but also more recently in Kazakhstan. Then, of course, Russia's war in Ukraine uh, has dramatic effects on migration. It's caused refugee flows and so forth. Um, and even prior to the war, even prior to this, you know, Russia began having some economic problems. So we see surging nationalism you know, during the uh, recent period, domestic political crackdowns. These have all affected uh, migration. And now, with the war, we see uh, mass refugee flows from Ukraine to European countries to other former Soviet republics. We also see exodus out of Russia um, to, especially to other former Soviet republics. And uh, these recent, all of these changes amount to you know very dramatic uh, geopolitical impacts of migration and, and the nexus between geopolitics, by which I mean the conflicts among nations, and migration perhaps are. are uh, have never been more clear than they are now. And so I just want to make a pitch for, for studying this. So why look at you know, 2017 when all these things have happened since then? Well, I would argue that this gives us a baseline. Because even before COVID, even before the war, uh, migration was a big factor in shaping uh, geopolitics and geopolitical tensions, and vice versa. That I would argue that you know, geopolitics and, and the, geo the interest of Russia in maintaining its regional influence has a lot to do with its migration policies. And then the third sort of broad perspective I've already alluded to is this idea of uh, the need to decolonize Russian and Eurasian studies. So, um, this, so this, this is a broad movement within Slavic studies or Russian studies, Eurasian studies. You know, we have, I've been talking with Michael about how to phrase this. And, <laughs> yeah, nobody knows. Somebody that has a good, a good idea. And, uh, and it has many, there's many different aspects to this sort of broad, uh, uh, I, I call it a movement for want of a better word, but it's not really an organized movement. It's more like a, a, a growing consensus or a growing push on the part of scholars who study the region to, uh, to, to make some changes in approaches involving uh, some combination of the following. So first of all, the idea is that uh, Russia needs to be understood as an imperial power, which had colonies, and, 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 uh, and so I take it, I mean, so this is more for historians, I, I take it, I'm not a historian, but 
that some of the historical literature and, and often in the ways of Russians, um, Russian scholars think of Russia itself and say, well, what do you mean? We didn't have colonies. We had the Soviet Union. It wasn't a colony. It was just a union of republics and so forth. So, so that's being challenged and, and there's calls for understanding Russia as this powerful colonizing force which imposed its will through coercion on you know, large swaths of territory, not just in the Soviet period, but of course going back to Imperial Russia. And that uh, uh, according to those who are advocating the decolonizing position, that aspect of Russia's history has been insufficiently appreciated. Now secondly, uh, the argument goes that, that not only was this a matter of history, but the kinds of attitudes associated with a colonizing power, a col a, an imperial power, persist today, in both in terms of how uh, Russians in society think about the nature of Russia as a, as a people, of Russia as a culture, as Russia's relations with uh, the other peoples who have been integrated into the Russian Empire in various ways at various points in time, and also in terms of government circles and how Russian government officials think of Russia's role in the region, in the world, and then finally in, uh, among scholars who study this area. And then and there it shows up as a critique of a sort of Russocentrism among scholars who uh, have focused overwhelmingly on Russia and Russian policies and, and Russia's actions to the exclusion of uh, devoting attention to other peoples in the region, and also within Russia have focused on ethnic Russians, and, and, and in particular on Moscow and the, the, the sort of uh, centers of power to the exclusion of the various and uh, many indigenous people uh, who've uh, been subsumed into Russian territory over the years, um, and also to other countries outside of Russia that have been affected by Russia's action, even if they were not integrated directly into Russian territory. And then there's also been calls for more research highlighting all those various people. So, so I want to suggest that this is, and it's really, so, so these arguments about decolonization, they're not new. They didn't just appear last February, but they've really been given a lot of force by uh, Russia's war against Ukraine uh, because that's really given a push to uh, calls to, to decolonize Russian studies through these different perspectives. Okay, and migration, in particular the migration of people you know, from, from places like Central Asia uh, to Russia and back forth. So that, that's clearly relevant here because we're talking about uh, you know, people who are not, uh, who are not uh, actually part of Russia, the, the migrants themselves, uh, but whose lives have been deeply impacted by uh, the situation in Russia, by policies of the Russian government, and, and stand in a position of, uh, in many ways, vulnerability vis-a-vis -vis Russia and its actions. All right, so the research questions for today, uh, which I'm going to, uh, I'm going to get back to those you know, broader uh, themes at the end, but the research questions today specifically are the following. So how do the experiences of labor migrants in Russia, so we know that there's a lot of labor migration to Russia, but how do the experiences of the, those migrants, how do they affect their perceptions of Russia? Um, and so I'm going to suggest that that's a somewhat understudied topic, that there, there, have, there has been a surge of research about immigrant experiences in Russia, focusing on uh, their, their encounters with the police, their exploitation by employers, their victimization by uh, local populations, by government officials. Um, and there's been other research looking at their impact on Russian public attitudes towards immigrants and um, you know, the role of xenophobia and racist views 
um, and, and shaping you know, how Russians perceive particularly um, ethnically and racially other immigrants such as Central Asians. Okay, but there's been less attempt to understand how the experiences that immigrants have um, uh, affect the way they view Russia as itself. And so I think that's really related to this decolonization you know, movement because we're talking about how does a, a people who arguably was colonized or to some extent in some sense has been colonized by Russia, how do they feel about the colonizing power? Um, what are the typical migrant experiences in Russia? And so by that, I alluded to, I put typical in quotation marks there, but because they, there are a lot, there's a lot of qualitative work about immigrants in Russia. There's growing numbers of, of quantitative studies, but in my view, that literature, it tends to emphasize a certain set of experiences that are not necessarily representative. So one of the themes of my research and my findings is that in fact, the experiences of Kyrgyzstani migrants are quite diverse, that they're, it's impossible to, to, to sort of uh, generalize that there's been some tendency by some you know, students of this topic to overly generalize, I would say, on the basis of small-scale qualitative studies, which have tended to emphasize uh, some of the more negative aspects of those experiences. And, and uh, so I'm, I'm running a little bit against the grain here, but because you know, to foreshadow my conclusions, actually the the findings of the study is that it's not all, you know, it's not uniformly bad. And in fact, some of the experiences of the Kyrgyzstani migrants who I talked to back in Kyrgyzstan, not while they are in Russia, but back in Kyrgyzstan, were actually quite positive. Um, so I'm trying to get a, a more broad, objective picture uh, that isn't focused just on a small, uh, selected group and therefore emphasizes those experiences over the broader set of things. And then finally, how do migrants views, how do they, um, um, how, so, so in particular, so, so it's one thing to, to say, all right, so you know, I'm going to give you some data about interviews I did, focus group interviews, and then a survey I did with uh, Kyrgyzstanis who migrated to Russia in return. And you know, one way to ask the question, well, what's the impact of migration is to compare the Kyrgyzstani um, migrants who went to Russia with Kyrgyzstanis who never migrated anywhere. We just stayed in Kyrgyzstan all the time. But I want to argue that that's less optimal because that there's something, you know, there is this issue of self-selection into migration and the people who migrate in general, whether they go to Russia or anywhere else, they're different from people who don't migrate. You know, they're different socioeconomically, they're different in terms of their attitudes, their outlook on life. And so I think one of the keys to this study is that we're, gonna, we're comparing not only not so much return migrants who went to Russia and came back to Kyrgyzstan to non-migrants, we're all going to compare them to Kyrgyzstanis who migrated to other countries. So that's, um, that's sort of the, I think one of the um, features that distinguishes this study from others is that we have data not only on return migrants from Russia, but return migrants from other places, especially Kazakhstan and Turkey, which are the other two major destinations, but other countries as well. All right, so those are my research questions. And I'm gonna I'm gonna gonna briefly go through the qualitative phase, part because we've already published an article reporting those results. I'll refer you to the article, and I'm not gonna dwell. And today I'm gonna focus more on the survey. So we did uh, my colleague Jane Zaviski and I, as part of a larger project, we did looking at housing issues in Russia, Ukraine, Azerbaijan, Kyrgyzstan. We did a series of focus groups um, in um, we did them actually in all four countries, but with we actually. As part of that whole project, we did focus groups where specifically with return, with return migrants from Russia, 
in Kyrgyzstan, and we did one in Ukraine as well, and those focus groups were conducted 2014 to 2016, and based on those, we developed a qualitative picture of sort of the range of experiences that, for us, what really stuck out to our surprise, you know, having read the literature, which is rife with accounts of police uh, abuse of immigrants, of horrible living conditions, of Russian employers not paying wages, of legal rights of uh, migrants being violated, of all kinds of terrible experiences. And, and we're not here to say that those don't happen. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to say everything's peachy and great. But our point is that with the, the return migrants that we talked to actually didn't dwell so much on those types of experiences, although they mentioned that they dwelt on other things. So what we were surprised to find, and I always like to do research where, you know, especially in quality research, where you find that things aren't what you expected. Like, to me, that's, it's kind of boring to find what you thought you'd find, right? I mean, why did you do the research anyway if you already knew that? You know? <laughs> so, so I like to, uh, and so this got us to thinking, uh, and then we did a survey to sort of, in part, to test some of uh, the generalizability of some of what we found with our uh, focus group uh, with, um, only in Bishkek, and also Shuri Oblast, the, the larger Oblast around Bishkek. Um, and part of that uh, sampling, we uh, oversampled return migrants in order to test some of these ideas. So we had a, a variety of research, but you know, and, and it's, so unfortunately that is one limitation of our surveys, only Bishkek and the experience of return migrants from Russia, from you know, the South or from other major cities may be very different. And so that's one limitation, but um, it, at least we have some quantitative data. Um, and so our core arguments for the qualitative phase and we, uh, we've published this already, so uh, you know, again, I'm just going to really breeze through. Although I, uh, I have slides with a lot of quotes from the focus groups, but and, and some, you know, this is probably more interesting than a bunch of numbers, which I'm really going to focus on. But I encourage you to read the paper if you're interested. So basically, what we found is that uh, the Kyrgyz and also the Ukrainian migrants, whom we uh, we interviewed as a group, the focus group in 2016 in Lviv. Uh, they actually had quite diverse experiences. In, you know, so we're asking them about what their experiences were while they were in Russia, you know, now that they're back in Ukraine, now they're back in Kyrgyzstan. And you know, what struck us is how when we asked them, so what do you remember most, you know, what's the most important thing, they really emphasized the economic benefits that migration had given them more than they emphasized their struggles with the police or their problems with employers or the suffering. Although, you know, again, I want to emphasize, because I don't want to be misunderstood, I'm not saying that those things weren't mentioned. It's just that um, if you read the literature, you'd think that you know everybody, who, all the Central Asian migrants who go to Russia have this awful experience where they're beaten and harassed by the police, and they're forced to pay bribes, and they're living in these crowded rooms. And so, so, so one of these is like, you might ask yourself, well, why does anyone even go to Russia in the first place? If all they do is get beaten by the police, and forced to pay bribes, and stolen their money by employers, and harassed by officials. And so what we found is that then we, people talk about, oh yeah, because of that, I was able to buy a house because of that. And so that's the most salient thing in the people's minds when they're back in Kyrgyzstan, having already been in Russia. We also found clear evidence of ethnic hierarchy. So oftentimes in the migration literature, we tend to lump labor migrants together as one group. And what we found is that, you know, not, not surprisingly, there's a racialization of the migrant experience. And so so you know, our, our, uh, what's particularly interesting is that the migrants themselves recognize it. So our Ukrainian migrant group you know, had much more positive experiences. They tended to downplay their kinds of tensions, even like the sort of interpersonal, inter 
ethnic tensions between Ukrainians and Russians. So this is like back to 2016. It might be very different today, of course. Um, but in contrast, the Kyrgyz also, you know, they had a lot more kinds of experiences where uh, there was clearly like racialized mistreatment where because you know, they're dark skinned, they stand out, they're not viewed as Europeans, they're more othered than the Ukrainians, then they have a much tougher time. However, even, so what, what's interesting is two things. So, so what, what's interesting from, or what we found, what we think is interesting, and I guess the editors of the Journal of the Two, because they published an article, was that the, 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 these two different ethnic or national ethnic groups, while they're in migration, they themselves were aware of these ethnic hierarchies in interesting ways. So one of the fascinating things is some of the Ukrainian immigrants talked about how much better they had it than the Central Asians who were working in the same construction groups as they did. And they said, oh yeah, you know, the Tajiks, they were really mistreated. They told stories of Tajiks. Actually, I mean, may be apocryphal, but one uh, participant actually recounted an incident where rather than pay these Tajik workers, the employer just buried them in cement, is what he said. So, um, and that, uh, who knows if this was true, if it was, but you know, it didn't seem to evoke much shock or reaction. But there was a discussion like, oh yeah, well, you know, the other, yeah, the Russians, they treat those Central Asians really poorly, and, but, they, but us, they're like, okay, you know, so if somebody has to dig a ditch, they send the Tajik, not us, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and the Kyrgyz also, they had a sense that they were treated better than Tajiks and Uzbeks. And that may be wrong, it may be, you know, misleading, but that's what they said. And they, their view was like, well, Kyrgyz, you know, we are more educated than Tajiks and Uzbeks, at least among the migrants, that uh, we, we speak better Russian than Tajiks and Uzbeks. And so, yes, you know, there's prejudice against Central Asians in general, but among the Central Asians, we're actually better treated than the Tajiks and the Uzbeks. And so, and then finally, what we found is, to our surprise, these return migrants who we expected would come home and say, oh, we hate Russia, we never want to go there again, the police are terrible, the employers rob us. They actually tend to have positive views of Russia. They go, oh, yeah, Putin is great. We like Putin, we hate Obama, like this kind of thing. Like they, you know, Putin saved us, Putin feeds us, Putin actually cares for us. Like, and, and so I'm not going to go through all the quotations, but so, so this gave us pause, it made us think. And so what, what I'm going to focus on today is more of the survey data. All right, so I'm going to push through. Uh, right, so here's the article, if you're interested, it's post-Soviet affairs. Uh, I'll send you the citation, but you can just Google it. Um, and so, um, all right. Then finally, all right, I'm just going to dwell on this for a minute, then I'll skip ahead to the survey because uh, I don't want to uh, run out of time to discuss it. So in the migration list, there's lots and lots of studies in Western sociology, economics, maybe even increasingly political science that looks at very different aspects of immigrant experiences in their host societies. There's a lot focusing on the labor market experiences, on their you know, educational attainment of immigrant children, on their encounters with the criminal justice system, that, you know, guess what? The United States, actually, immigrants are also persecuted by the criminal justice system. Russia is not the only country where there are such experiences. Um, in terms of the, the impact that immigrant flows have on culture, language, and religion in the host societies, the types of conflicts over these issues that emerge, uh, there's research on how immigration affects personal identities, how the experience of immigration, you know, it empowers some people, it discourages others, it leads to all these kinds of personal transformations or not. Um, gender norms and how 
because countries differ a lot with respect to gender norms when you move to across countries. Those are another big area. Uh, there's lots of research on immigration, particularly in the US and health, and then demographic behaviors such as fertility, marriage, divorce, all, right, all this stuff. I think there's surprisingly little attention given you know, the nature of immigration, which is involves the, you know, living in a different country and the movement of people across international borders, the surprisingly little attention to the interplay between immigration and geopolitics. And so that's one of the big pushes that we have in this study, is to try to draw attention to specifically that. So that's why we're asking, like, how do the Kyrgyz migrants, how do, they, how do they feel about Russia when they go back to Kyrgyzstan? And that matters because you know, whether or not countries are democratic or authoritarian, public opinion towards other countries affects, um, affects geopolitics. So we can't, I mean, well, I, I suppose that some people would say we can, but actually, as a sociologist, I think you can't really ignore uh, public opinion, even in authoritarian countries, because even things such as the enthusiasm with which soldiers fight wars you know, is, is affected by how they feel about the country they're fighting against. And so, even in a sort of most authoritarian context imaginable, we should take stock of the potential impact that the experience of migrating to another country has on how that country is viewed. All right, so that's, that's the sort of big push here. All right, so now I'm gonna skip through a lot of this stuff. Uh, all right, so yeah, so I mean, I think uh, in, in broad scope, I think there's sort of three different narratives about Immigrants within Russia, they were, so they're, they're either portrayed as a threat, you know, that's a lot of the Russian nationalist press and, and then Russian politicians, political demagogues in Russia, as in the US, often raise immigrants as a, you know, some kind of, they're criminals, they're drug dealers, they're, you know, stealing jobs, uh, they're convenient scapegoats, and that clearly is the case. Then there's the victim imagery, with which a lot of, you know, for, for good, for good reasons that uh, human rights groups and journalists and some, some researchers uh, dramatize the ways in which immigrants in Russia are victimized, as we said, by employers, by police, uh, by racist xenophobes, skinheads, and so forth. But then there's also like a, a hero imagery, and there's some, and that's probably the least common, some, some who portray immigrants as the solution to Russia's economic problems, like Russia's labor-intensive economy. It suffers, has suffered from a chronic labor shortage and, and, and demographic decline, and so it needs you know, cheap labor in the form of immigrant labor to sustain its economy. And then also there's you know, sort of a counter wave of people who want to give agency back to immigrants by in their studies focusing on how they boldly and resourcefully come back and overcome all these problems. Okay, so our, our argument here is that all, you know, the, the, we shouldn't resort to these kinds of simplistic images. Instead, we should uh, try to be uh, uh, attentive to the diversity of experience, the range of immigration outcomes that uh, people experience. All right, so I'm just gonna move ahead. Oh, here's just, um, so here's some data on the, uh, annual flows of immigrants to uh, Russia, according to the Vestat, and uh, of different years. And so you can see, you know, one thing a lot of people uh, don't realize in, in today is uh, easy to overlook, is that um, at least you know, starting particularly in the uh, teens, I guess you would call them, um, um, the, a large component of immigration consists of Ukrainians. And, and that actually was accelerated after 2014 in the annexations. And the Russian government actually had some policies to try to attract specifically Ukrainian 
immigrants, um, arguably for geopolitical reasons. They would give them, guarantee them apartments, and a lot of them they sent off to the Far East, where many of them turned out to be not so happy, and some of them actually came back to Ukraine. Uh, but that's a big, you know, so the white bars represent Ukrainians, but mostly we see Central Asians. So the green are Uzbeks, and then uh, Tajiks, are the light blue, and then Kyrgyz are, you know, a smaller population, but still a consistent, uh, you know, Kazakh also figure in there. So you can see the role of Central Asian in the inflow of migrate, migrants to Russia through 2017, the year we did our survey. So that's why I started. So Ted, how do you count the people that got Russian passports from Ukraine? They go into the white zone or not? Well, this is at the moment they entered the country. So, so, so it's a flow measure. So they would be. There would be a migrant. There would be a migrant if. Okay. And, and I don't. I mean, this. I. This is the <laughs> Russian statistical service. So. Who knows? All right. So we do the focus groups. I'm gonna just. I mean, I'm not gonna again dwell on this, but. You know, we, they talked about, the, the Kyrgyz migrants talked about their lows, largely economic, not surprisingly, there's a well-known phenomenon where uh, many Kyrgyz, particularly key life course transitions, uh, there's a traditional wedding feast that costs a lot of money, and uh, so many, particularly from rural areas uh, in the south, Kyrgyz, they, they have to go abroad to earn enough money to be able to afford to get married or to pay back uh, people who loan them money for their wedding, uh, they need money to acquire uh, a house. Uh, it's part of the responsibility, generally, of the male's family. So housing, weddings, then uh, general standard economic motives such as lack of jobs. And so just, you know, I'll, I'll just you dwell for a second here. So, you know, so we, we did ask them in the focus group, so how do you feel, you know, what kinds of countries should uh, uh, Kyrgyzstan align with? And so here's just a good illustration of this. Uh, this is a, a focus group with uh, females uh, in, in Kyrgyzstan, female internally. The closest to us is Russia. She protects our security. They have a military base in, in Kant, and, and Kant is not, apparently, Kant is the Kyrgyz word for beat. Is that right? So there's a, sit, a city near uh, Bishkek called Kant, and it's not Immanuel Kant, although there are some German houses. <laughs> uh, so the Russia has a military base. They, they, they provide us with arms. If our children didn't work in Russia, we would have no chance to develop. The, the years were difficult, and so on and so forth. Um, you know, when we see conversations between Obama and Putin, I personally admire Putin. Thank you, Putin, because he doesn't leave us without work. He pays us wages, thanks to him. He cares about Kyrgyzstan. So, so there really were, and these were not, yeah, so that we, we had Kyrgyz, Moderators, we were. These, these were. I don't think these were kind of like giving the finger to the American researchers. Kind of, I, they were just spontaneous, you know, people talking in a, a natural context about how they view. Okay, and so um, we, you know, we. They, they did talk about some problems and so forth. They also talk about uh, successes. So they talked about you know contacts with other Kyrgyz who had already migrated. They helped them get good jobs and so forth. Okay. Um, oh, that's that Kyrgyz. So, so here's, I mentioned this just to give you a few examples. So um, these respondents said, well, the Russians, that is, they, they treat, that is, the Russians, they treat Kyrgyz better than Tajiks and Uzbeks. Kyrgyz are educated. They have at least 10 years. Those from Tajikistan and Uzbekistan have only six to eight years. So like this, and this is just, you know, again, I don't know if that's true. I don't know if it's, um, but it, I, I mean, I actually think it is. There is some evidence, at least among the immigrant population in Russia is true. Um, but that, that was the perception of the uh, Kyrgyz migrants themselves. 
Okay, well, I'm gonna blast forward now, and, and again, so uh, we have the uh, Ukrainian, you know, the Ukrainian experiences, but I'm not gonna, I wanna get to the survey yet. Okay, so, all right, but I'll, I'll stop briefly with the conclusion. So, all right, so we, we found that there are different conditions of migration, so, so one of the biggest differences is Ukrainians in our single focus group we had, to a person, without exception, they all had jobs lined up before they went to Ukraine in this position. So these weren't, these weren't like resellers who, after 2014, went because they wanted to try their luck in Russia. They were temporary short-term labor migrants, and that's the nature of the sampling. They were sampling them in Ukraine, not in Russia. So of course, they were, but there was a lot of Ukrainians who would routinely go back and forth. But they all had jobs before they got there, whereas most of the Kyrgyz return migrants, they had gone there and then found a job. And that, actually, if you think about it, creates a very different condition, starting conditions that you know, is, is um, an interesting difference. And, you know, they, they had, they both talked about these ethnic hierarchies, they both had heterogeneous experiences, and, um, you know, we concluded based on the quality data that, it, to some extent, oddly enough, you know, that uh, the experiences of migration actually improved or, or at least reinforced positive views about Russia among the Kyrgyz migrants that we spoke to, or that our partners spoke to. Okay. So the survey data, I'm going to go through a quick demographic and socioeconomic portrait of the migrants to Russia and then the migrants to other countries. I'm going to, uh, we asked them about experiences in the labor market, housing and harassment with police and so forth, the impact of migration, and then views of Russia I'm going to focus on. Okay, and so uh, we did the survey in May and June 2017. Um, we did the focus groups, good response rate, and we purposely sampled in neighborhoods where we thought there'd be a lot of, and we used a kind of quota system to identify households with migrants. And we also did this kind of paired interview of non-migrant members of migrant households with the migrants. And so we have, I haven't really dug into that comparison yet, but that gives us some leverage to, you know, control for some of the selection factors that, like, that, the, that operate at the household level eventually. And now I'm stuck. Well, can you use the computer to advance? I don't know what happened here. Oh, there you go. Is that the right yeah, side? Yeah, no. no. But, but. Okay. All right. So, now the fun stuff. All right. So, we found uh, that the. So, so I'm going to report the data in three groups the Russian migrants, so those who went to Russia and came back for the most recent trip in the then the migrants to other countries, and then the non-migrants. And so the Russian migrants stand as being more male, younger, less likely, interestingly enough, to speak Russian at home than the migrants to other countries. And so remember, we're talking about Bishkek here, which is a fairly Russian-speaking part of Kyrgyzstan compared to some of the other areas. Um, but it is a little counterintuitive. Um, but, you know, again, uh, it, it doesn't freak me out particularly. So the main destinations of the non-Russian migrants were also more likely to be ethnic Kyrgyz as opposed to uh, Russians and, and others, or Uzbeks. And then they, um, uh, the main destinations were Kazakhstan and Turkey. So about a third of the non-Russian migrant sample went to each of those countries. Uh, so two-thirds total of them. So overwhelmingly those two countries. And then China was the next common destination of 8%. They tend to be younger, more likely to be married. Uh, have fewer children, and actually most likely to speak Russian at home. So 
the Russian migrants are also less educated. So despite the, this narrative about them being more educated than the Uzbeks and the Tajiks, they're actually less educated than the migrants who go out to other countries, and then the, and also more likely to work in manual occupations. So um, those would seem to be like less favorable factors for the migrants who went to Russia as opposed to other countries. And so here's just evidence of this, the statistics you probably can't even see. Um, I'm not going to draw, but it just sort of basically confirms what I was saying. It gives you the percentage distribution. So, you know, the samples, so we had huge samples. So 381 return migrants from Russia, 105 from other countries, at least in the most recent trip. Right? The, a lot of non-migrants. We had other purposes of the research as well. Um, and that's their distribution by... Oh, we also only included 18 to 49-year-olds. I should point that as well. And it sort of makes sense for studying migration because younger people tend to be more involved in labor migration. Right? With education differences. Okay, so what about experiences? So while they were abroad, the, mi the Russian migrants were more likely to have been employed uh, 92 percent so so almost you know very large percent were working while they were migrating uh, compared to 71 percent so so some of that non-russian migration is education migrants or maybe family uh, trips um, yeah so they're more likely to study and they're also more likely to have non-manual jobs if they were working in Turkey or in Kazakhstan than in Russia so you know, manual employment was more common which makes sense because they were the Russian migrants were more likely to be in manual employment before they migrated. Um, there was no difference in terms of whether or not they had contracts. In both cases, about two-thirds of them, they had labor contracts, which is, you know, does stand out as one of those findings that you might not expect if you read the literature, which suggests that the Russian employers don't give contracts, and it's all informal, and it's all illegal. And they, so, you know, that's pretty actually substantial. In terms of work permits, uh, we also found no difference between the Russian and the um, the non-Russian migrants, and that 60% of them had real work permits, and another 10% had fake work permits, and then 30% had no work permits uh, while they were there, and this is among those who were actually working. Um, the Russians were more likely to live with friends, the, the Russian migrants, than the other migrants other countries. Um, we found less evidence, at least in, in the survey, in the questions we asked, uh, and who knows, I and mean, maybe people didn't want to talk in the survey uh, about experiences of harassment, but we asked them about police harassment, uh, employee, uh, employer exploitation, uh, government official exploitation harassment, and then uh, general population experiences of micro, what we call now microaggressions, although I think even in 2017 that term was just coming, so we didn't use that in the survey. But. Um, and so, okay, so the Russian migrants, uh, 36% of them reported having had negative encounters with the police while they were in Russia. Um, and, you know, that's, again, you can look at these data two ways. You can say, well, that's a lot, you know, one out of three immigrants. But, you know, I would, I would say if you actually read some of the qualitative studies of immigrants while they're in Russia, you get the impression that just about every Central Asian who goes to Russia is harassed by the police, forced to pay a bribe, you know, but that's not the case, based on it. So, so one out of three is a far too large a number, but it does suggest that there's some variation. Because two out of three Kyrgyz who go to Russia when they come back say they didn't experience any police harassment. Okay? And then 
15% experience harassment in those other countries from the police as well. So, um, all right. Uh, so that's, yeah, I, I don't want to dwell on these numbers, living with friends. All right, well, let's look at the harassment numbers. So, so this shows how long, whether or not their legal status, so, so if they were, a percent like 80% basically said they were illegal the whole time they're in the country and they have the right to travel there and stay there for 90 days uh, at the visa laws at the time. Um, so being in the country illegally would mean overstaying the visa or else working illegally. That could also make them illegal. Um, so 64% again said they never experienced any kind of harassment by the police, 25% once or twice. 12% more often than once or twice, so you know, 12% frequent recurrent harassment. Uh, harassment by government officials is less common than harassment by the police, but still noticeable. So 14% reported once or twice, 5% more often compared to well, about the same. In fact, that difference is not statistically uh, significant. So, and nor is the difference harassment by local population. So this would include you know, bad encounters with locals, with skinheads, or whoever, it's about the same as for government harassment, you know, 86%, um, never experienced it, but so still. Um, and then abuse by employers, about the same. So, so police harassment is really the only way where we see a difference uh, between Russia and uh, not uh, places other than Russia, although this is also um, statistically different, although it doesn't have to do with the Incidents, but with the frequency, that difference. Though. And so, so the police harassment does stand out as a more common experience associated with Russia, but even there, we don't see a majority of migrants reporting experiences of police harassment. All right, what about the impact of migration? So, one thing we're curious about is, you know, is is there um, is there a return in the sense that when uh, the Migrants come back. Is there some benefit? Do they so? So, from an economic perspective, if migration is a way of accruing human capital, developing skills and experience, perhaps resources that then one can translate into better position once you return home. And we find some evidence for that. Um, and so, particularly, you see. So, so this shows. So, so this is like the current situation. This is after they've gone to Russia. Now they're back in Kyrgyzstan, or they've gone to China, Turkey, Kazakhstan. They're back in Kyrgyzstan. And you can compare the two to see, you know, what are they doing now? And so, the uh, uh, in terms of occupational class, those who migrated elsewhere are more likely to be in managerial positions, in particular, or to have their own businesses, um, or to work in lower routine dominant jobs. And we still see that, you know, by and large, the Russian migrants, returnees from Russia, are tend to be more concentrated in. Manual jobs, unskilled manual jobs. Um, there's the, some small differences in employment that mostly have to do with unemployment and self-employment. The earnings distribution, so we asked them to, to indicate what interval of earnings they found. We didn't ask them the specific earnings. And uh, what's interesting here, so, so here we can compare the migrants as, as the former trip to with the, the non-migrants, not just with uh, Russia versus other types of migrants. And so what's interesting is here sort of in the middle of the distribution, you see that after returning, the migrants actually have, tend to have higher wages than the non-migrants. So people who migrate to Russia and they come back to Kyrgyzstan, 
they're working, they tend to be in these kind of mid-range, so the blue bars are the Russian migrants, the orange are the non-Russian migrants. The non-Russian migrants in particular stand out as being more likely to be in these higher wage deciles. So, so these are supposed to more or less approximate wage deciles. We didn't do so very well. <laughs> but the, the, um, you know, the, the, the difference between the blue and orange and then the gray bars shows you the difference of a concentration in that particular wage decile. And so that does suggest that migrants uh, do better when they come home. And we, you know, if you estimate wage regressions, then controlling for covariates, there is a positive effect relative to not migrating at all of having migrated to either Russia and even more so other What's countries. What's SOM stand for? SOM. Oh, that's the, the QGIS currency. Oh, okay. Um, so, the, the heart of the matter, views of Russia. And we have several questions about how people view institutions. So we asked about, you know, what, how would you characterize the quality of social protections in Russia? What about freedom of speech, equality before the law, and foreign policy? Now, if you ask most Westerners how they would characterize social protections, freedom of speech, equality before the law, and foreign policy in Russia, even in 2017, what would they say? Bad, 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 terrible, terrible, terrible. Social protections, you know, awful. Uh, freedom of speech, even worse. Equality before the law. Kathy, right? What, what would most Westerners say the situation in Russia is and foreign policy? So we asked them this with respect to Russia and also with respect to Kyrgyzstan, we, what we found consistently is the immigrants who returned from Russia have more positive views of Russian institutions. And there's also some tendency for them to have more negative views of Kyrgyz institutions upon returning. So that's where we have this notion of geopolitical remittances, where we argue that, you know, even though from a Western perspective it might seem inconceivable that someone from Kyrgyzstan could go to Russia and then have, think Russia is wonderful and, and great upon returning, it does suggest that there is some of that has actually been taking place. And so we can look at uh, some of those numbers. So we asked them, how do you assess the system of social protection in Russia? Now, most curious migrants, they're not going to benefit from that. So they're not going to get, you know, wealth or unemployment checks or things like that or benefits. But look how they assess it. 68% either very positive or somewhat positive compared to you know, 57% of the non-migrants and 50%. So overall, the, the Kyrgyz population does tend to have pretty positive views of Russian social protections, but the immigrants, even more so. There are very few negative. Okay, when it comes to freedom of speech, 60% uh, uh, positively assess the situation with respect to freedom of speech, 60% of the migrants who just came back from Russia, compared to 45% of the migrants from going to other countries and 50% of the general population. Uh, equality before the law, 55% of the return migrants to Kyrgyzstan said yes, they positively, either very positively or somewhat positively assessed equality before the law compared to lower percentages among the other migrants and, which, and the non-migrants. And then foreign policy of Russia, 60% approve among the Russian return migrants 48% among non-migrants. So, so these are all statistically significant differences. They're not huge, but they're you know, large enough to be noteworthy. And they're large enough that we could, I think, with some confidence, 
can see that it looks like, you know, the return migrants. Now, of course, they could have had better impressions of Russia before they went there. That could be, it could be all such. And the reason they went to Russia is, initially is because they had all these, but remember, they actually were in Russia. And so, even if there was some initial selection, even if that predisposes them to have rosy views of, you know, Russia, you know, it's nonetheless quite striking that they, that those differences remain. So even if you don't want to argue that there's a causal impact, at least the opposite did not. It's not like migrants from Kyrgyzstan went to Russia and then they were just so uh, appalled by their experiences that then they said, oh, Russia's a terrible place. We're never going back. What's DR's step order? Like, didn't respond? Uh, yeah, it would be did not respond. Okay, and then here the interesting thing is that they're also more negative about Kyrgyzstan after they come back. All right. All right, so I, um, I'll jump to the punchline. So, you know, this is just something of what I said. I want to then, uh, so, all right, so I realize this is purely descriptive. Uh, I don't really think we have any, I mean, what we do have, so, so what we do have, that I have looked, so we do have this matched quality, where we have, in the same household, where we survey uh, return migrants from Russia, we also survey non-migrants. And so to the extent that fact, selection factors, such as you know, legacy experiences of families, or wealth, or anything like that, might, or pro-Russian household, you know, we should be able to control for that by within household, looking within household. We haven't done that. So that, that's probably the closest we're going to be able to come to any kind of Argument. But I, I'm, even that, I'm a little bit suspicious. And I, I'm not going to ever stick a claim to, to having causal evidence here. But nonetheless, I think it is interesting to see that uh, these views are more positive, at least more positive than we expected. Uh, of course, these are retrospective reporting. These are uh, politically or potentially sensitive issues. Ask people about experiences of harassment and exploitation and so forth. Um, it could be that the return migrants are not representative of the migrant population in general, and the migrants who stay in the country differ. But I think that bias should actually work against our point. That the, the migrants who stay in Russia, if anything, you expect them to be less pro-Russian, so to speak, to put it crudely, than the ones who actually returned and left Russia and went back to Kyrgyzstan to be included in our study. So I don't think that's a argument that counters our findings, I think that actually strengthens our findings, the potential bias of return migrants versus those who, and there's also this notion of failed migrants, like you know, people who go back are more likely to have to have bad experiences than those who stay. Which can could differ, and then of course the world has changed dramatically since 2017, so this could be completely different from the situation with respect to migrants who are returning from Russia to Kyrgyzstan more recently. Still, it's useful to have this baseline data. All right, then what do we mean by this geopolitical dimension? Well, all the debates that we have, that we have it in the United States, of course, it's a very politicized issue, it's all over the place, they, they tend to uh, ignore this notion of geopolitical remittances. And I think, uh, and, and also correspondingly, studies of soft power, that is the efforts of governments to project power uh, throughout the world, to project power abroad, not through hard power of economic and military coercion, but through creating a positive image of the country, 
um, that you know, gives it more leeway to accomplish its goals in the geopolitical arena, they don't look at immigrant experiences either. So I think there's like this sort of black hole where neither the immigration literature nor the political literature, the IR literature on soft power has directly examined the potential role that immigration experiences can have in shaping people's views. And so by geopolitical remittances, I'm referring, or we are referring to the idea that just as immigrants, when they return, or while they're abroad, they send back money, um, and then you know, we've, there's, there's social remittances, and political remittances, and gender ideology remittances, and you know, the idea of remittances is what immigrants bring back when they return to their country of origin from their host country where they spent time abroad. And our idea is that they also carry back with them images of the country where they were, and that these could potentially affect how that country is perceived in the original um, origin country. So we need more research. Um, we should also test this in other contexts. I mean, this is not so much a message for this audience, but you know, it wouldn't surprise me that the experience that, oh, say, Chinese or Mexicans have when they immigrate to the United States and the type of treatment they experience, that that affects how they view the United States and that, in turn, when they go back, when they exchange, when they communicate with their relatives back home, that would affect how the United States is perceived in those countries. I mean, it's not going to be a perfect match, but it's, it should be relevant. And finally, what do I mean by back to the original comment? So, so I think this is kind of a cautionary tale, and I, I'm, and I, you know, I, this decolonization movement, so to speak, it's, it's sort of, um, I mean, it's not again, it's not a new thing, but it's, a, uh, it's just really, um, you know, I, I think it will take some time for it to unfold. But I am concerned um, that is, it's a result of how. Uh, upsetting to many of us the Russian war against Ukraine is that we uh, maybe are, are there, there's a temptation let's put it that way, there's a temptation to resort to overly simplistic and overly homogeneous depictions of the nature of Russia's relationships to uh, the people who it has um, had interactions with and, and, and colonized and, and so this because what we're finding here, I mean, basically, to put it in a nutshell, you know, cutting through all, all the verbiage, is that in the, the own accounts of the people who we both surveyed and, and interviewed in our focus groups, there's a much more mixed bag, and if anything, we see more positive and negative views about Russia. And that sort of cuts against the grain of this idea that Russia has been nothing but an oppressor, nothing but this sort of demonic force that is you know, victimize all the peoples. And so again, I'm not, I'm not saying that, oh, we need to achieve, no, Russia was not oppressive. I mean, by no means, I don't want to be misunderstood. But I do think we need more nuance in understanding how, uh, how in specific contexts with respect to specific domains, uh, this impact of Russia's colonial history and Russia's relationships with the peoples and the countries that it has historically dominated, how that actually plays out. And, and for that, we need to actually ask the people. And this also maybe will help us understand why in other parts of the world, not Western Europe and Japan, but in parts of Asia, the attitudes towards Russia's actions in Ukraine differ very much. 
And finally, I just wanted to put this quote because it sort of um, represents this. And you know, it's very sad for me to read this. We actually published this quote in the article. This is from a focus group we conducted in Ukraine, where um, one of the participants, you know, who had been in Russia, and they talked a lot about, you know, they, they were kind of like, yeah, the Russians, whatever. We get along. We are, we're all people. Yeah, of course, some of them call us Hachli, and we call them. Moscow and this and that, but it's really not a big deal. We just, you know, we have beers afterwards and everything's fine. That was kind of, the, and, and then, you know, commenting on this, one of them said, getting Russians to hate Ukrainians is a serious challenge. Same with getting Ukrainians to hate Russians. 